I love that song. And uh, I love it not only because my buddy sang it, but because he wrote it out of a personal experience. I love it because I know it's written by a guy who's looked into the face of the homeless and has seen their humanity and has recognized that at least in some ways they're not all that different from you and from me. And I've been praying all week that somehow by the power of God, you'll have that experience this morning as well, where you all of a sudden, it's like you wake up and go, hey, wait a minute, there are people too, and not always all that different. You know, I think one of the problems that we have when it comes to this whole issue of homelessness is that we've sort of stereotyped it. In other words, our picture of the face of homelessness is way, way too small. Homelessness for a lot of us is that guy that we see out on Federal Highway, or maybe it's off an off-ramp of I-95, and he has that sign, and it says, we'll work for food, okay? But you don't really think he will, do you? And here's why, because he's there 24 hours a day, every day, every week, every month, every year since you moved to Fort Lauderdale. So you look at that and you say, that's homelessness, and if that's it, I'm not interested. Or maybe it's the deranged person. It is the person who is so diminished by mental illness that you see them walking down the street, right? And they're talking to somebody that apparently only they can see. And it's usually pretty animated. It's like this outraged conversation and they're yelling and they're arguing and they're screaming. And if you're sitting next to them in your car at the light, you're praying, oh, dear God, please let the light change because this guy's freaking me out. Am I off base on that? Okay, that's homelessness, so therefore, I don't know what to do with that. I don't have a category for that. Surely I can't help, therefore. Or it's somebody who is radically disabled physically. I'm going to describe a couple of people to you, and you're going to know exactly who I'm talking about. The picture of homelessness for many of us is reduced solely to that man whose spinal condition, his upper spine and his neck is so afflicted with disease, if you know who I'm talking about, when he stands straight up and down like you and I do, the top of his head does not point to the sky. The top of his head points to the ground. How many of you have seen him? Yeah. I saw him again yesterday. Or maybe it's that guy. He's an older black gentleman. I'd put him in his late 60s, early 70s. He has one leg, and he is like omnipresent in the city of Fort Lauderdale. He rolls around in his wheelchair, propelling himself with his one leg. You know who I'm talking about? Remember a couple of years ago, I'm pulling into 7-Eleven off of uh, Sunrise in Bayview. Less than a mile from where I live, okay? And the radio announcer is telling me that it's going to be the coldest night of the year. And I'm from South Florida. And, you know, I mean, anything under 80, I'm excited about. Anything. It's going to be low 30s, woo, you know, for like a day. That's why it's exciting. So I'm all jacked up about cold night. I can't wait to roll up in the blankets. And tomorrow, I'm going to have to find a jacket, okay? So I'm pulling into 7-Eleven to get a banana or whatever. I don't know. It's just my way of avoiding Publix. So I pull into 7-Eleven. And I'm getting out of my car with coldest night of the year ringing in my ears, right? And there's that man sitting there in his shorts. It's already cold, by the way. It's like 8.30 at night. It's a little late on the coldest night of the year to start heading for a homeless shelter. And he's got this Miami Dolphins-like jacket on that's this flimsy little thing. 
And I'm getting out of my car, you know, and I go get whatever I need, and I get back in my car, and my daughter's with me, and I'm driving away, I'm thinking, this guy is literally going to freeze tonight. So I go back to my house, I run in the house, I said to my wife, look, give me a blanket that you don't care if you ever see again. She gives me the blanket, we go back to 7-Eleven, and he's gone. And so I drove all over the place looking for this guy. I went behind 7-Eleven, drove through the bank, I drove through the park across the street, I went by the mall, I went up toward Federal, up Sunrise, couldn't find him anywhere. So my daughter and I went and got ice cream. I'm pretty sure he did not eat ice cream that night. I know he made it. I saw him again yesterday. Or it's that guy, and maybe you've seen this guy too. He's a younger guy, also a black gentleman. He's probably in his early 30s. I really, I haven't seen him in a little while, which frankly concerns me a little bit. But he gets around town on his crutches, and the bottom part of his leg, I don't know what's wrong with it, but it's blown up like a pumpkin, and I will tell you that it smells. And I'm just going to speak plainly to you, rancid, and I know that because I've had him in my car. And I'm driving with this man, windows down, praying, dear God, do not let me embarrass this man by gagging. But those are like the only categories of homelessness we have, and, and when we come up against that, we go, what can I do? More than you think. But if that's all that you think about when you think of the homeless, then your picture is way, way too small. Way too small. Talked with a lady this past week and learned all kinds of stuff. I've known her for years. I learned all kinds of cool new stuff. Cool like now, (laughs) not cool at the time. She told me that when she was 18 years old, she fell in love with this guy, and she was a college student at the time, and he was a construction worker, and they lived here in Fort Lauderdale, and it was the late 70s, and it was kind of a recession, and so the construction industry then was sort of maybe a little bit like it is today. It's just not happening a lot. And so there wasn't a lot of work for him to do, and he, like other people all over the country, apparently heard that there was work, things happening in the state of California. And so he said, I'm going to California. And she, to the chagrin of her parents, dropped out of school, got in the truck, and went with him. And on the way, discovered that he was alcoholic and abusive and all kinds of, frankly, really terrible things. So they scrape up whatever they've got money-wise. They make it all the way to L.A., okay? They get to Los Angeles, and they discover, again, they're not the only people who have heard, hey, there's work in California. So, like, people are flocking like birds looking for work in California. And the Californians, imagine this, aren't that happy about all these people coming in to take their jobs. So they erected all of these barriers legislatively for these people to make it difficult for these guys to get a place to live so they would leave. Like you had to be a resident of the state of California for six months to sign a valid lease on an apartment. All this crazy stuff. It's like, really? You're serious? Yeah. So serious that they bought a tent and started living in a state park where they'd stay for two weeks, pay to live, and then they'd have to move to another state park for two weeks and then another state park for two weeks. And these campgrounds, if you will, it's like these mobile tent villages because they weren't the only ones in this scenario and they didn't have enough money to leave. And she was so oppressed by this guy and by the fact that she had offended her family that she felt like she couldn't reach out for any kind of help. They didn't have much money. There wasn't much work. The work that there was did not pay very well and he drank most of the money. She remembers rainstorms and mudslides. It reads like a fiction novel, but it's not fiction. Days without food. She said there was a time she went three days, didn't eat. Begged this guy, please, you got to get me something to eat, crying. So they scraped together all of their loose change, pennies, dimes, nickels, quarters, $3 and change. 
went to the supermarket and got as much potato salad as you could get for $3 and change and lived off that for a couple of days. Eventually, they made it back to Fort Lauderdale. She broke things off. That relationship came to an end. She met a wonderful guy, has a beautiful family, came to faith in Christ through another family in this church who also happens to be their neighbor. It's the way it works, parenthetically, just as an aside. That's doing it right, guys. And she's been part, together with her family, of the core of this church for 12 or 13 years. I'm going to give you a little secret. It's not really a secret, but I just, most pastors don't state this overtly. Pastors have favorites. She's one of my favorites, and I don't think anybody could begrudge me as having her as one of my favorites. I'm talking about Jane Hall, and she's sitting right there. That's Jane. See, now the picture gets a little bigger, doesn't it? And it gets more familiar. It's another guy I talked to this week. Went to high school here, grew up in Fort Lauderdale, I think in this neighborhood, actually. Graduated, went off to Tallahassee, and like so many of us who went off to Tallahassee, got in trouble. Okay? If you're looking for trouble in Tallahassee, it's there, and I know where to find it. And so did he. And not only did he find it, but it found him. And he ended up, you know, with some addiction issues and just his life just totally spiraled out of control. And, you know, his parents and family and friends tried to help him and it didn't work. And they tried to help him and it didn't work. And they tried to help him and it didn't work. And they sent him to 30 days of rehab and that didn't work. And he went back to Tallahassee and flunked out of school, came back to Fort Lauderdale. And as a result of all of the failures and him taking advantage of them and all of that, all of those issues that you've seen in people's lives and many of you have experienced, his family did the tough love deal. So he's cut off from everyone who loves him. And he's living with a couple of buddies in a house on the water in Fort Lauderdale, all part of that same culture. And he's driving home one night and he's driving down the street and he says there's like 15 cars in the front yard of this house and they're DEA agents. And he knows that they were not just there for his roommates. So he turned his car around and got out of there, but figured, hey, man, they probably know what kind of car I'm driving. He ditches his car, and in 10 minutes, he goes from living in the water on Fort La- in Fort Lauderdale to living on the street. Took a job at a homeless mission here in town for $5 a week as a cook serving beans and bread for six months. And that's where he lived. Finally, he got a job outside of that, you know, has dealt and did deal with his addiction issues, made it out of the pit. But he's worked here at the church and at our school for the last over nine years now. It's Ashley Haskell. I don't know where Ashley is, but he's somewhere. Where are you? Oh, there you are. Looks a little more familiar, doesn't it? Last story, I'm at one of these pastor's meetings. We've been having these meetings together for over a year, these different churches, talking about this issue and coming around the shepherd's way. And, uh, you know, how can we all partner together to, to help out? So I'm sitting at one of these meetings, and I'm talking with Eddie Copeland. Eddie works for the shepherd's way. He's also an elder at City Church Fort Lauderdale, a church that we planted here in South Florida or here in Fort Lauderdale. And he's telling me that the day before, a Westminster Academy family showed up at their door living out of their car. 
That just blew me away. Stunned by that, you know, and I just, I wanted to scream, wait, wait, uh, what? Tell me that again? Yeah, that's the deal. And I'm thinking to myself, where is their church? Where is their family? Where's their community of friends? Where's their community group if they're involved in one? Where is that network, that structure that props up my life and props up your life, that safety net that's there to catch us, not if, but when we fall? I think if most of us surveyed our lives going all the way back, we'd realize that at some point somebody stepped in and wrote us a check or said, you know, you can just live with me for a while or whatever. They bridged the gap. A lot of folks here today, absent that structure, are basically one or two paychecks from homeless. Well, they're living out of their car. And they came to the shepherd's way. But see, that's kind of my point. They don't have that structure. And in large part, what this whole initiative is about is the Christian community stepping up and in the name of Christ saying, you know what, we love God enough and we love you enough to be that structure for you. Even if we've never met you, even if we don't know you, even if we don't vote the same way as you or agree with you on absolutely everything in life or what, you know, all that goes away. We want to be that structure. This initiative is not about handing things out. There's some of that, and there needs to be. What it is about primarily is helping people gain and also, in many cases, regain the ability to fend for themselves and to provide for themselves. That's what Hope South Florida is all about. It's the Christian community stepping up and saying to the homeless and to the community, hey, we see your face. We recognize as we look at you the brotherhood and the sisterhood of our humanity together with you. We see in your face a reflection of our own faces. And we understand that as believers in Jesus, it is not our duty, not our obligation. It is our great joy and privilege to serve you. In other words, we want the homeless in our community to know that in the name of Jesus, there is hope for them in South Florida. And so this morning, I want to look at a story out of the book of Acts that I think kind of makes this point and sends this message. And it's a story involving the apostles Peter and John, but it involves also this guy who is lame from birth. He's a beggar. That's it. That's what he is. That's what he does. He's so beaten down by life that his highest aspiration in life, like the greatest thing he can imagine, is a handout. He has no category for healing. He has no category for restoration. He has no understanding or any hope at all that he will ever be able to provide for himself and be self-sufficient and experience all the dignity that that infuses into a heart and to a life. And yet in the story, if you know it, in the name of Christ, this man is delivered and restored, and he gains all of those things, and more than that, he gains eternal life. And that's part of this story and part of this initiative as well. The story is written by Luke, and I, I think it's interesting that Luke is a physician. 
Now think about that for a minute, you know? I mean, this is a guy who has studied. This is a guy who has worked. This is a guy who has dedicated his life to help people like the guy that he's going to tell us about in this story. This is someone who has realized the limits of what humanity can do to help humanity and has seen and experienced firsthand of what humanity in the name and by the power of the Lord Jesus can do for the glory of Jesus to help humanity. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says this, it says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, that's three o'clock in the afternoon, our time, okay? And then he also tells us that that is the hour of prayer. Here's the deal. In the Jewish temple, they did sacrifices in the morning and they did sacrifices in the afternoon. And after the sacrifices, they held prayer services. And so Peter and John, being good Jews, had that rhythm into their life. That was built into the rhythm of the Christian community, which is founded almost exclusively, at least originally, of Jewish people who convert to Christianity. And so even as the Jews are going and they're holding their prayer services at this particular time of day, the Christians are going and they're holding their prayer services, different part of the temple court perhaps, but at this same exact time of day. And these guys are going up to the temple for the prayer service, busy. They're busy guys. Please know that. I mean, these guys, together with a few other people, founded this movement called Christianity, if you will, that within their own lifetime, according to non-Christian historians, turned the world upside down. They've got places to be. They have people to see. And hundreds, if not a few thousand at this point, are likely waiting for them to show up. And so I can imagine them walking up to the temple, and they're probably doing their order of worship on the fly. You know, hey, I'm going to call them to worship just like I did yesterday, you know, and then we're going to read this psalm, and John, then I'm going to ask you to come up and lead us in a time of prayer, and then after that we're going to have a testimony from so-and-so, and can't you see it? Can't you hear it? Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, And then Luke tells us, and a man who had been lame from his mother's womb, a guy who had never walked and never really saw any reason to hope that he would, was being carried along, whom they used to set down. Now, how frequently did they set him down? Every day at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful. The beautiful gate is the idea in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple, which means, practically speaking, that Peter and John, together with everyone in their church and pretty much everybody else in town, passed by this guy every day at least twice. For how long? Before this day. Never thought about that as you read this story before, have you? I've shared with you guys that when Beth and I were married, we moved to the city of Chicago and, you know, sold our car and worked downtown. And uh, you get familiar with the homeless when you do that because um, I ended up walking the same six blocks to work every morning and the same six blocks home every afternoon or evening. And I would see the same guys. And I'd see them in the same spot. It's sort of like they had an agreement. You know, there was a map that they were only themselves aware of, and that was Joe's spot, and this was Bill's spot, and this is, you know, Sandra's spot, and that's so-and-so's spot, and everybody had their spot. And I saw them with such regularity, quite frankly, that when they didn't show up on a particular day, particularly if it was the winter, 
I kind of got concerned because, you know, at least I got to know these guys a little bit. I mean, I'd say hi, they'd say hi, same faces every day, but mostly it was just hi. Remember when I moved there, I was like a walking ATM machine, man. Seriously, I, I was walking, I was coming over a bridge by the Wrigley Building in downtown. They, they would hang out at the bridges because, you know, you got to walk by them there. There's, you're not going to swim, so you have to take the bridge. This guy comes up to me and he said, hey, man, do you have any money? And I said, no, I, you know, I don't. He said, come on, buddy, help me out. I said, look, you want me to get my wallet out? I started taking my wallet out. I said, I'm going to show you. I got no money. He's like, no, 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 it's okay. You've given to me before. And I thought, cool, so I have a reputation then. But that stopped. And maybe it needed to stop. But what happened in my heart didn't need to happen. See, what happened is I'd just pass them by because I had places to be and people to see. And because over time, my heart grew really cold to all the requests. And you see some stuff in a big city in particular. You know, I would see parents who would come out with their kids and, you know, I mean, it's crowdy, particularly during the time of day when everybody's trying to get to work or get home or it's lunch or whatever. And they would send their little ones, four or five years old at best, into the crowd and they'd come up and ask you for money. And more than one occasion, I said, okay, where are your parents? They're like, over here. I'm like, okay, let's go to your parents. And I went, I went to the parents probably three or four different times and said, look, here's the deal. I'm not going to give you any money, but your kids tell me that you're hungry. I will take you around the corner. There's a Popeye's chicken right there, and I will buy you whatever you order right now. No, no, man, just give us the money. Really? Okay, we're done. And your heart grows hard. And one night, my wife and I went to our favorite pizza place. I know some of you are from the Northeast, and you think that you have good pizza there. Not really. I mean, it's good compared to here, but go to Chicago and go to Pacino's. So we're walking home. It's winter. The city empties out at night. It's, I don't know, 7 o'clock or something. And I saw this woman up the street, and she has a baby in the stroller, and I thought, oh, good grief. She's looking for 20 bucks for me, you know, because she brought the kid out to play my heartstrings. And I'm looking at the traffic. I'm walking up Michigan Avenue. I've got to get to the other side anyway. She's about half a block up, and I don't want to walk by her, to be very honest. So I'm checking to see if I can cut across the street, you know, jaywalk, so I don't have to deal with this. But the lights turn green, and here come the cars, and you don't want to be out in Michigan Avenue when the cars are coming. I thought, oh, well, I guess we're going to have to pass this woman by. So anyway, I'm walking by with Beth, and this lady comes over, and she asks for money. And, and I said, look, you know, uh, I'm not going to give you any money. Here's what I'll do. I, I've got three or four pieces in this to-go box, still warm. You want it? Fully expecting her to say, Nah, man, you know, just give me the money. I've never seen somebody so thankful over three pieces of pizza in my life. She about tore the lid off the box trying to get to him. She devoured that pizza in all of about 30 seconds. I was so moved, I wanted to take her to the pizza place and say, whatever she wants, give her, just set up an account. So when she shows up and she wants pizza, bill me. 
It was like in that moment, the Spirit of God reached down into a heart that had grown really cold toward these people with whom I share humanity, who don't, when I see the big picture, look all that different from me, who if you take all the props of my life away for which I can take no credit for, wow, the resemblance is striking. And he just kind of crushed it. So don't categorize everybody in one category. Don't grow hard and cold. These people are people too. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple as they and everyone in their church did at least once a day, every day. And they go up at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, and a man who had been lame from his mother's birth was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day. So, you know, that was Bill. Hey, how you doing? And a good man. And they're busy. So this man who had been lame from his mother's birth was being carried along, and they used to set down every single day at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful. How irony, the two pictures, the beautiful gate and this man who's about to be made a whole lot more beautiful than any gate. And they set him down in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple, see? And there's a tension, there's a question in this story that's building from the beginning. And what is the question? Well, the question when you work through it like this is this, is today going to be just like any other day or is today going to be different? And that, by the way, also is what eight churches And all the homeless in the city in Broward County are wondering as well. Is it going to be like every other day? Or is it going to be any different? Well, it's different for this guy. And it's different from Peter and John. It says, when this lame beggar saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms because, again, life has so beaten him down that the best he can ask for, the all that he can hope for is a couple of bucks, a couple of nickels, a couple of shekels, or whatever it was. That's it. He can't imagine healing. That's where a lot of these folks are at in life. And so, you know, I mean, the best thing they can imagine is money to get them through the night and maybe into the next day, and then money to get them through the night and maybe into the next day, and then money to get them through the night and maybe into the next day. Good grief, it's the coldest night of the year. The answer is not money. The answer is Jesus. But I'm going to state real plainly, the answer involves money. Unequivocally, without a doubt. This plan and initiative involves money. It takes money to feed and to clothe and particularly to house people. As you take in this plan and educate yourself about it, which I hope you will, you'll see housing in particular takes money. There's crisis housing, and you know, we need more of that. There's transitional housing, and we need more of that. There's long-term housing, and we need more of that. But what's the plan? What's the goal? Is it to put them there forever? No, the goal is to help them to gain or regain the ability to house themselves and to advantage them in every way that we can and move them along that line until they do that. The answer is not money, but it does involve it. So this guy asks for money, and... Then Luke tells us, but Peter, along with John, 
fixed his gaze on him, which I think is just kind of his way of saying, you know what, he, f- he really noticed this guy for the first time. I mean, yeah, he'd seen him, he'd walked by, maybe he'd stepped over him a couple of times. I did that. All these people, it's like the guy's laying across the sidewalk. I'm going over because I have places to be. He recognized this man's humanity, I think, for the first time. And he saw on his face a face not so unlike his own. Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, so powerful, he says, look at us. That, I think, is what the homeless are doing today in our community. I think they're looking at us. That's what the city government is doing today. We've met with the mayor and other officials. They're looking at us. That's, I think, to some degree what our whole city is doing. They're, they're looking at us, and, and they're doing that because the Scripture calls us to do something. Their right to look to us is what I'm saying. And so Peter and John have walked by this guy a hundred times. This time they look at them or look at him like they've never done before. And Peter says, look at us. And then Luke says, and he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said to him, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk and seizing him by the right hand. And so what did he give him? Jesus and his hand. It's not just humanity touching humanity. It's humanity touching humanity this time in the powerful name of Christ, seizing him by the right hand, reaching down and taking him is the idea. He raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, this man who has never walked stood. And he stood upright and began to walk and he entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. And everyone in the temple who's been walking by this guy for years is just like dumbstruck, you know? And they all gather around the apostles to find out what in the world happened, because there's no mistaking who this is or what has happened. And Peter then, seizing upon that opportunity, tells them about Jesus. And if you kind of do the math, you can figure out that about 2,000 people that day came to faith in Christ because they saw the power of Christ working through the people of Christ to make a difference in the lives of other people. Stunning. There's a sense in which in solving this man's problem in the name of Jesus, they earned the right to preach Jesus. And that, I think, too, is what this initiative is about. It's about helping people. It's about hurting people, or helping hurting people, rather. It's about, you know, ministering to people in the name of Christ, displaying the selflessness and the power of Jesus through our lives, in their lives, and telling people about Jesus as we go, because they'll take notice. And so there it is. That's it. That's all I got. But there's a question, isn't there? You know what the question is? Is today going to be just like any other day? Or is today going to be different?
We're going to show you a video that has been put together by the Shepherd's Way in partnership with all eight of these different churches, explains somewhat what Hope South Florida really is all about, gives to you sort of an emblem of the heart of what we're trying to do. And on the back end of that, Matt Lominick is going to get up and he's going to say, okay, practically speaking, here's what you can do and here's how you can get involved. Amen.